You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. All right, this morning, this is the next to last um, message in this series, Hope in Empty Places. Um, glad you didn't clap for that. Uh, we are, uh, this week, we're going to talk about worship and empty produces life. Worship and empty produces life. So, um, I'm going to circle back to the three foundational assertions of hope in an empty place. Here's assertion number one, that empty is an illusion because God is an ever-present presence. Empty is an illusion because God is an ever-present presence. So Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And that that actually ends with, verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. All right, so here's how this premise works. Since God created empty, he precedes empty. Then he hovered over the waters, so that means that he was present and empty. And he produced life, light and everything got produced out of the empty. So he precedes empty, he's present and empty, and he produces full out of empty. And this is the best thing he does. The best thing God does is resurrections. He turns empty crosses and empty tombs into life. All right. So as a result, then empty is an illusion because he's always present. I defined empty as when, when you find yourself in a, a spot in a position that exceeds your ability to address it. Okay? So it ex, uh, exceeds your creativity, ex, exceeds your financial resources, it exceeds your intellect, it exceeds your strength. My mom used to have this phrase that said, money, uh, uh, a problem isn't a problem if money can solve it. And I would say it's easy for you to say, Mom, because I'm broke, right? Um, but the, 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 her point was trying to be, we, we panic over stuff we have resources for. And so in the case of being a follower of Christ, we panic over things in which we have a resource for, okay? So here's assertion number two. Hope is not an emotion, but an, but an anchor in the person of Christ, right? So, well, hope is an emotion. Yeah, ho- hope is an emotion. Feelings are real, right? But, but they're not reliable, Hope is more than emotion, it's anchored in Christ. So Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, we have this hope, and he's speaking of Jesus, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I love the message version of this when it says that we have this anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates that, translates that as reach up and take hold with both hands. It's a great rendition of that, that we have this hope and we should take hold with both hands, making it firm and secure to us. So that leads to assertion number three, is that then hope can be learned, practiced, and passed. If it's an emotion, it's going to be circumstance-dependent. If our hope's in a person, that I can actually learn more about this person. I can practice the hope that comes with this person, and I can pass hope because it's in a person, 
not in the motion. So that should catch everybody up or, and or if this is your first time in this series, that gives you enough of a foundation for us to move forward. So today, I want to expand on what I talked about last week on worship's role when you find yourself empty by giving you seven big ideas out of one of the most unique passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the passage, you'll say it's not unique. If you're unfamiliar with the passage, you go, how did that happen? So I want to get you back to the place where maybe it's the first time you heard the story. All right? So it's 2 Kings chapter 5. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. But he had leprosy. So now notice first that Naaman wasn't a commander in the army of Aram. He was the commander in the army of Aram. Now Aram is part of, or was part of, what we would now know as Syria. Okay? So, so that gives you a little context. And they were an on-again, off-again enemy of Israel. All right? And Naaman was the commander in those victories. Now, but where does the scripture say those victories came from? It said those victories came from the Lord. Huh? What do you mean? Well, when, when you read the Old Testament, for sensitive ears and eyes, some of it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would God use an enemy nation to defeat his people? Why would he do that? And I would say that in each of those cases, that was an act of grace. Because grace isn't just um, a, a forgetting of something. Grace is going to be anything, any process or anything that happens that brings us back into relationship with the Lord. All right, that would be grace. We want to define grace by the very the act, right? We want to clear defined lines on the act to say whether it was good or not. So if it was good, then it was graceful. That's kind of how we think, right? But God's looking not just at the act, he's looking at the result. So any result that brings us back into relationship with God is an act of grace. Now, one reason why it's, that's tough to accept is because as a culture, we're losing a sense of personal responsibility. Everybody over the age 40 says, Amen. <laughs> that's, I'm not taking a shot. I apologize. Two thirds of you are under the age of 40. Um, but you understand what I'm saying about per, no, nothing's ever our fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Something they should have done. If this was done, this was done. Right? And so, so we lose the sense of what my father would have said was if you make your bed, you lie in it. Right? That there's, there's consequences to actions, right? And so when there's disobedience, disobedience demands discipline in order to put you back in position of relationship. Does that mean then the discipline wasn't graceful? No, quite the contrary. It would mean the discipline is graceful because it's bringing us back into relationship, okay? And so God used other nations to do that with Israel because he's looking at the end game, not just in the moment, all right? So to many... Grace is a free pass for a past act, but to God, grace is any path toward reconciliation and restoration. If, if, you, if you've had addicts in your family or have been close to someone in addiction, you, you would have heard um, some coaching around, unless someone reaches rock bottom, they won't be begin to look or fight for freedom. 
So does that make rock bottom and the process to get rock bottom not a graceful act? Or would you say that's actually a graceful act? Because then it can bring them back out of that, right? And so, so that's how, I, some of the, how we need to look at this story in terms of how God extends grace. In situations you go, where, where, where's the grace? Right, how, how did you end up there? All right, so uh, here's the beginning of the story, um, verse two through six. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, exclamation point. He would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Um, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And there, back in verse 4, we get introduced to, although vaguely, the spiritual influence catalyst in this entire net narrative. You catch it? A young captive girl from Israel. We don't even get her name. I, who knows if Naaman even knew her name, right? So, so where did this cap to come from? There would have been a time in which um, the king of Aram would have sent uh, uh, Naaman into the country. They would have won a battle. They would have taken people back with them. And she, at some point in this time, she is taken from her family, her nation, her worship, in terms of temple worship, all this stuff, she's taken from that and she's put in a home now where she is a servant. And the question, that first question that jumps out at me is why in the world would she ever say, oh, you can find healing from a prophet in Israel, right? I mean, if you've been taken from your home and you've been pulled somewhere else and your, and your master gets leprosy, you go, that's what you get, Right? Are you really going to be about bringing some reprieve to him? So why is that? The best answer that I can have is that slavery had not robbed her of her hope. So her condition, which would have been defined as empty by in anybody's category, had not robbed her of her hope. And I'll even go a little further that I will reframe her referral as an act of worship. Why? Because any word, action, or deed that highlights the magnitude of God is worship. In America, we'll define the first 20 minutes we spent this morning in singing, we would define that as worship. And yet, and it is, but any word, action, or deed that highlights the magnitude of God is worship. So when she tells him, there is a prophet in Israel that can cure you, she is drawing attention to Yahweh, and that was worship. That was worship, all right? So the next question would be, um, how, could she, how, could she force, how could she turn her situation and keep this vertical worship going and this horizontal uh, grace working if she had been knocked so far backwards? How many of you have been knocked down before? Been knocked down before. Let's, let's all commiserate with one of them. Knocked down before. How about though you've been knocked backwards? Okay, the same number of you are defining it the same way, but I, I've, made, I've made distinction. Okay, I, knocked backwards is that I'm starting from a different place than I was before. 
right? That's a little different than being knocked down, right? It's knocked backwards. She's starting at a different place than where she was, she was before. Um, and she was at a place um, that would have been easy to lose her worship. It had been easy for her to lose worship. And yet worship, worship, your worship and your grace can change more people than just you. And that's kind of what we see in the story. Um, now, why, so I would say then, no matter what situation you find yourself in, find a place, find a way, find the words to continue worship, continuing drawing attention to the magnitude, the magnitude of God. In Syria, she would not have had a way to worship like she had before. There would have been no priest, there would have been no Levite, there would have been no temple, there would have been no sacrifice. There would have been no way for her to continue her worship uh, in the manner in which she was used to. But there's a passage, and I think it's in Samuel, where it says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. It was even after everyone uh, in his army, their families had been taken. It said that David encouraged himself in the Lord, and then he sought after God, and he trusted God. Right? So, so I maintain that she somehow, in her situation, maintained a posture of worship. The, 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 um, the, the new question, again, another question for me is, uh, well, she had to overcome to do this. She had to overcome the why me and the woe is me. You've heard me talk about this before. When you get knocked down or knocked backwards, we all have to overcome the why me and the woe is me. All right? If we live in the why me, what we're really saying here is, I, I, I am not a part of God's sovereignty. That, that, that I have elevated myself above this idea that God can use me in the circumstances that he has aligned for me. Is this making sense? I'm going to separate him. Why, why me? Why me? The woe is me. When you live in woe is me, you're saying that my situation is somehow above the power of God. Woe is me is I'm in this so deep, there's no way God can reach me or deliver me because woe is me is all focused on what? Me. And so the, when the focus is on me, then that means I'm elevating myself above where God is. And she would have had to overcome that at some point of why me, why I've been taken here, why am I in this situation? I didn't do anything to deserve to be here. Why me? Woe is me. This will never change. This is bigger than anything else. I'm just stuck here. You can't worship well when you're stuck in why me and woe is me. It has to be over, it has to be overcome. Um, the, the, the enemy wants to do one thing with empty. God wants to produce something bigger. So becoming and remaining a person, person of worship is the key to a full life and the leading people around you into that same fullness into that same fullness. So here's big idea number one. It's taken me that long to get you to number one, but, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll sandwich them together. Here's number one. Living life and giving life isn't position dependent. It's worship centric. Living life and giving life isn't position dependent. It's worship centric. I can live life fully and I can give full life, not by the measure of where I am, but the measure of who he is. And when worship is centric to my life, that worship supersedes my position. 
when I can worship in my position, then I have elevated God above that position. So you see how that brings hope? See, the situation will drain hope. But if I am in worship in that situation, then I am eleva- I've elevated God, not like he's like not elevated, right? It's the, it's, I'm elevating him back in my life, and that elevation then supersedes the circumstance. Here's big idea number two. Setbacks aren't staybacks. They're just new seasons for life-giving worship and spiritual influence. That's back into folding this back into the sovereignty of God. Listen, you don't have to understand God or, or, or the situation to acknowledge his sovereignty. The very fact that we say that he's sovereign is I don't understand you. I had a good conversation with someone this past week at a wedding that I did uh, in Denver. And they said, has, has your faith, they asked me, says, how has your faith changed over the years? And, and, um, and, and really he was looking for, have I doubted my faith over the years? He was a skeptic. And um, I said, well, there's been plenty of times that I asked God, what were you thinking? And he may stop me and said, what does he say? I said, he does not, has never felt inclined to answer that question. <laughs> I said, but what I would say is my faith has been refined and been strengthened over the years, which is 50, by the way. Actually, 51 years. It doesn't look the same as when I was eight. It's been refined and strengthened. And so... Setbacks aren't staybacks if we can understand that, okay, here is a new season of worship. Recognizing that that new season of worship is going to have a different impact on me and my faith, and it's going to have a different impact on other people that witness that in this, in this case. So, so I, I'm, I, I'm not going to live, I have to be in the position I'm in, but my heart and my mind doesn't have to be there. My heart and my mind can be with Christ. All right, so, so the first question I really asked was, how did she do it? The next question really for me is, why did Naaman trust her? Right? I mean, we don't, we don't see a lot of dialogue here. It's kind of like Naaman goes, okay, let me just get permission to go, and I'm going. And here's my answer. A worshiper will, be, will instinctively be trusted. If you are a worshiper you will be instinctively trusted. Here's my rationale. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Right? So, so people gravitated to Jesus because he was full of life. Now he is the God incarnate. He's full of life here. And he was full of grace and truth. And when someone is full of grace and truth, they instinctively, you're drawn to people like that. Well, so in our worship, when it says that God inhabits the praise of his people, I would say he inhabits us as we praise, the, as we praise him too. And when I'm being transformed in my worship, I am being full of, I'm being filled with life, and I'm being filled with grace, and I'm being filled with truth. And when I live a life as a worshiper, like right, if, if worship is confined to 20 minutes, 25 minutes on a Sunday, I don't, I'm not a worshiper, I'm worshiping. Okay? And so 
every word, action, and deed that draws attention to the magnitude of God is worship. Right? So, so every time, and when I'm living my life, every word, deed, and action that I can to demonstrate the magnitude of God, I'm worshiping. And that, those worship seasons make me into a worshiper. A worshiper is filled with life, grace, and truth. And so I think when she spoke and said, there's a prophet in Israel, he believed her. He believed her. It wasn't just so he was so desperate for healing. He believed her. All right, so here's a big idea number three. Worshiping Jesus fills you with life, grace, and truth. Life, grace, and truth are attractive, they're recognizable, and trustworthy. And so here's a hard question in the middle of this message is, if your worship isn't shaping you, changing you, feeling you, strengthening you, it's time to reevaluate your worship and figure out what's missing. If it's not filling you with life, grace, and truth, and that life, grace, and truth is not attracting the trust of others, it is a healthy spiritual exercise for all of us to reevaluate what we see and understand as worship and how we do that. It was just as quiet at 9 o'clock. <laughs> all right, 2 Kings 5, 7. Let's get on with the story. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back life? Why did this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. All right. Who did the, who did the slave girl tell Naaman to go to? A prophet in Israel. But, but Naaman's king said, go see the king. Here's a letter of reference. Right? Here's how you pay for it. All right. When he gets to the king of Israel, the king of Israel, the reason why he tore his robe is he's thinking, I can't cure this man. All this is is another nation trying to pick a fight with us again so they can go to war with us. Now you tell me, why is the king of Israel, why does the king of Israel not have the faith in Yahweh that a servant girl in captivity does? I'll tell you why. It doesn't take much reading of the Old Testament to read about kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord, which means that their disobedience had separated them from God, which means their worship ceased because they were worshiping other gods. And so she was sending him to some, a worshiper and he went to a, someone who had stopped worshiping. There's two leadership axioms at play here. One is vision leaks. Have you ever heard that? Vision leaks. If you don't keep something in front of people at enough pace, they lose the why. Vision leaks. Here was a king that didn't have vision for his people with God and it affected a whole nation. The second is a fish rots from the head down. So when stuff starts stinking, look for who's leading that thing, right? Because somehow they have separated themselves, and that's what's happening, and that's what happened. This man, this man had stopped and lost his worship. So here's big idea number four. When your worship fades, your faith will follow, and so will your spiritual influence. When your worship fades, your faith will follow. Let's keep going. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? I mean, he's, he's a prophet doing prophet stuff. Prophets were not loved in the Old Testament. All right? They, most of them got killed. 
Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. Here comes the parade. Okay? The parade is leaving the kingdom, showing up at some hole in a wall, little, little sublet, <laughs> you know, flat. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, stopped the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. All this pomp and circumstance, he sends a messenger. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be, be cleansed. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. I mean, Naaman was worthy of a show and he wasn't getting the show. He said, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash them and be cleansed? So he turned off and went off in a rage. And we go, what are you thinking? And I wonder if, if, we, if I reframe this, you can count how many times you've done the same thing. God said, this is the way forward. This is the thing to do. And we go, why would I do that? I know, how, I know what I need to do. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became, became clean like that of a young boy. So when Elisha finds out the king wasn't going to do this, he steps in. Um, Naaman was desperate enough uh, to go to the king and the advice of a servant girl, but he wasn't desperate enough to take the lead from a prophet's errand boy. And here's the key point here. At this point, the only thing standing between Naaman and his healing was his pride. His pride. So big idea five is you can't hold on to your pride and change your position. And big idea number six is obedience is worship. And both are needed for life. Obedience. I'm not sure if it's obedience, if we can figure out all of the reasons why. That might just be agreement. Okay, God, I agree with your assessment. I agree with your direction. I'll be glad to do that. I'm not sure that's obedience. Sure, it's better than disobedience. But it's more like, oh, well, you're thinking like me. I'll do that. Obedience is, huh? Do what? Say what? Stop what? Start what? Huh? And I think as, as we mature as believers, our huhs get shorter. Right? They start out kind of big because we're, we're kind of learning. We kind of want to believe he's good. We gave our life to him and salvation because we wanted to believe what we heard. We wanted to believe that he's good. But the longer you walk with God and he demonstrates his goodness, then your trust level grows. Your experience with God should parallel your trust with God. These things should grow proportionately together. All right? And so then our disobediences become smaller um, and more manageable. Um, so, but here's we start to learn that this entire saga had little to do with the disease of a general. 
and had more to do with God's mission. The disease of a general and a commander was fitting into a larger plan. And this is where we come to verse 15. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is a God and all the, there's no God in all the world except in Israel. Let me pause there. Now I know. Can you imagine the little bit of a skepticism? Still, he's in the water, out of the water, nothing's changed. In the water, out of the water, nothing's changed. Embarrassed now, in the water. I mean, there's a, there's a crowd. I mean, he brought a bunch of folk with him, okay? In and out, nothing. In and out, what am I doing here? In and out, this isn't working. You know every time in and out, he's looking, right? Six time in and out. God. Seventh time in and out. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, and the guy's replied, yes. You know, I mean, he's, he's in, he's out like this. And then he goes, now I know. Here's the, here's the important part of this, now I know. In, in, in this culture, everyone had a God. Every nation had their gods. And if I'm at war with you and I beat you, I've beaten your God. Your God now is inferior to my God. And Naaman, Naaman had beaten a lot of gods, especially Israel's God. He has no privy that God gave him the victory. He thinks his army did it. Now he had heard the rumors he knew what they claimed, but his experience was, at the end of the day, I'm bigger than your God. And now something he never could do, never could control, leprosy had no cure, right? I think the way leprosy works is you lose, you lose the feeling. And so because you lose the feeling, the nerve endings and those things, you get injured and you don't know it, okay? And so no cure to this. But now he's cured. It's now I know there's no other God in every, wherever I've set my foot in, in battle, there isn't anybody like Yahweh. And here's, I'm going to jump ahead to, um, to this one point that I'll circle back. Many people know what Christians claim about God, but their interactions with God are through too many leaky kings and not enough worshipers and prophets. Right? He was a, he was a leaky king. Worship had died in his life and he had set up other things to worship. And as a result, the power of God available to him in Israel laid dormant. He had heard all about how the God of Israel had conquered Egypt. But his experience, nah, what are people's experience with us? Are we leaky kings? Are we worshipers and prophets? Do we give life? Or do we tear our robes and say, what do you want me to do about that? I can't do anything about that. Church, I've learned this so often. What I, know, I, I pray my best prayers <laughs> when I'm the most overwhelmed. The most effective prayers that will come out of my mouth is when I have nothing to offer what the situation is that we're praying about. Right. Extend our worship in that way. So it goes on. 
The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not. Okay, so he tries, to, he tries to give the gifts. He tries to worship Elisha. Elisha will not accept the gifts, right? So Elisha is recognizing that this is a baby Christian. Doesn't know what he's doing yet. He's offering false worship. Elisha stops that so now because he wants to get to the true worship. And this is what we get to. He said, all right, if you, if you, verse 17. If you will not, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Like he starts out by saying, our water is cleaner than your water. He ends with, your dirt's holy, our dirt's not. So when I kneel down, I want to kneel down on holy ground. I don't want to kneel down on that dirt there. And, I, and, I, and, then, I, and then I love this piece, right? So now he's going through his mind about, about how his life is going to play out now that this is, he's different now. You understand this? He's different now. And he's, I think he's fast forwarding how his life plays out. And he says, oh, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon, their God, to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. He has probably grown up worshiping in this temple and this God. And now he knows that God's, if it's not that that God's not real, it's that God is so far inferior to this God. I will never pledge my allegiance to any other God but this God. So what's happened here? The, the man has repented. There's repentance. Right, another conversation I had with someone, they said, well, what's the difference between, you know, when we talk about Christianity, you can't talk about Christianity coming to Christ without talking about Jesus and without talking about repentance. Right, and he was he was asking, "What is repentance?" I said, "Well, you know, you've had you've probably said you're sorry before and kept doing the same things." I said, "Yeah." I said, "So that's really not much of an apology, is it?" I said, "No." I said, "Repentance is a turning away and walking in another direction. That's when you know someone's sorry." See, it's, it isn't say we come to Christ by telling we're sorry. We come to Christ in repentance. Our repentance is, a, is an acknowledgement that the way I'm living is leading to death and I need to go in another direction to leave into life. And now he's made this flip, but he knows, wow, wait a minute, I already, instinctively, he already knew it was wrong to worship someone else. But I love the grace of Elisha. Elisha's processing it too, I bet. There's, there's legitimate repentance in Naaman. And he's going to have to do this act. But I can already recognize that act won't be worship. And he says, go in peace. I love that. Go in peace. I, I know that Christianity can be made up, made, made out to be a list of rules. And I would say that if that's still where you are, that is a misconception of what Christianity is. Okay. Now, wait a minute, Pastor, you said that my life changes and my behavior changes and my things change. It absolutely does. But not in a way that tries to conform or contort ourselves into a, a, new set, a new set of parameters. What happens is, now out of the love and abundance of my heart from receiving life, I'm looking for any possible way to continue to worship God. And there are things that I know immediately at salvation that there's things I know that I want to leave and need to leave behind. I don't need to pick those up again. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in my life that I don't know. 
until I start walking this out with the Lord. Right? So at salvation, I am made a new creature in Christ. I am new. I'm seen through the righteousness of God through the cross. So I am brand new. And I continue to get more new. And more new. And more new. It's a paradox. It's, it's very hard to wrap your brain around. But I'm made new in Christ. And yet, as I begin to walk out a life with Christ, there's going to be other things. He's going to come alongside of me and say, Charlie, you know when you do act and say this stuff? Yeah? That's not life-giving. That's opposite how my spirit wants to work in you. You need to lay that down. Yes, sir. I'll lay that down. And I'll go a little further and go a little further. Hey, Charlie, you know what just took place there? Yeah. That's, that's not really reflective of who I am. And I'm alive in you. This is the way you would do this next time. Yeah. Yeah, right? So it's not that someone gives me this long list and somehow I gotta figure out how I conform to all of this before I'm ever accepted in the eyes of Christ. It's I'm accepted in the eyes of Christ. And then he walks me out as I change and really transforms me into a worshiper, right? Someone full of life, full of grace and full of truth because that life and grace and truth makes Naaman the first missionary to Syria. He's the first missionary to Syria and he begins because a servant girl was not going to stop her worship just because she found herself in an empty position. Empty doesn't have to stop our worship. So big idea number seven, worship and empty produces life. And it reaches further than you could ever imagine. So here's the, here's the seven recap. Big idea number one. Come on, team. Living a full life and giving life isn't position dependent. It's worship centric. Big idea number two. Setbacks aren't staybacks. They're just new seasons for worship. Big idea number three. Worshiping Jesus fills you with life, grace, and truth. Life, grace, and truth are attractive, recognizable, and trustworthy. All the notes are online by Wednesday, by the way. But I did want to get them all on one slide for you to take your picture like they were doing at 9 o'clock. Here's big idea number four. When your worship fades, your faith will follow, and so will your spiritual influence. Big idea number five. You can't hold on to your pride and change your position. Number six. Obedience is worship, and both are needed for life. And number seven, worship at empty produces life and it reaches further than you can imagine. There is power, there is life producing power in worship, there's life sustaining power in worship and there's life transference in worship. Worship keeps your head in the game, your heart connected to God and your feet moving forward, fulfilling God's purpose. So we want, I want to worship coming out of the message because more than likely some of you are transitioning in empty places places in which you have do not have the resources to bring to bear in the position you find yourself that's what this message was addressing and how worship changes that so as usual, we have communion on my, on my right and left if you want to come and partake of communion as response. This side of the altar, if you want to spend some time just you alone with God, you come over here. 
If you want to link your faith, borrow some faith from other people to pray with you, you come to this side of the altar. But make sure that you begin worship. Stand with me for prayer. Father, we're so grateful of your word and the depth of it, your spirit that you deposit. But Lord, sometimes we still feel like we're alone or empty. But yet this story, as much as any story in scripture, tells us what worship can do to us, in us, with us, and through us. Lord, so we stand today and we worship regardless. Matter of fact, we, we worship um, because we're in the spots we're in right now, Lord. Receive it in the name of Jesus. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.